This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Boris Karpa with New Books in Military History, and today we have with us Joseph Tekowski, who is an unusual author for us in several ways. First of all, a lot of our authors come from the from the world of military history. Joseph Tekowski is actually not a full-time historian. He is a restaurant consultant, and He's written a fascinating book, 40 Thieves on Saipan, the elite marine scout snipers in one of World War II's bloodiest battles. And not only is it an unusual book, it's a book with an unusual story. I often ask writers how they've come to write the book, but in this case, it's a really fascinating story. The story of this book is a book in and of itself, really. It's a Hollywood story, I think. So, uh, Joseph, can you tell us about your book and how you've come to write it? Certainly. It all began with a eulogy that was delivered at my father's funeral. Uh, I always knew he was a colonel in the Marine Corps, and that was evident from all of the correspondence that he would get and the reunions that he would go to. Um, but that was about it. He never spoke of World War II, or, and uh, if the topic ever came up, he'd quickly avoid the subject. Um, so at his funeral, uh, many men got up to speak about his uh, tenure as mayor and uh, other things, his youngest brother. Um, but one man got up and delivered a different sort of eulogy about the first time that he met Frank Tahovsky, and that was in 1955 at the University of Wisconsin in Madison. And dad was there on the GI Bill, and this kid was in Naval ROTC. And every time he'd go to the Naval ROTC meetings, there'd always be this Marine sergeant there who was very stoic in his dress blues, every inch a Marine. And if he had occasion to say this fellow's name, he'd just bark it out. But one day he sees this surly Marine sergeant talking to Frank. And they're joking and laughing. And the guy thought it was strange at first until he saw it happening a couple more times. And he finally went up to the sergeant and said, excuse me, but how do you know Frank Tahovsky? And he said, that's Lieutenant Tahovsky to you. And when you speak of him, do it with respect. He was our platoon leader on Saipan when a Japanese tank broke through our lines. We had no weapons to fight it with, and we all thought we were goners. The tank kept advancing, Uh, the fire from it was withering, and I thought I had seen my last day. Suddenly, out of the corner of my eye, this solitary figure runs into the field of fire, 
shoots a bazooka, disables the tank, and kills the crew inside. That was the lieutenant. He saved my life that day. He saved the life of every man in our platoon. So when you speak of him, do it with respect. So that was the first story I had ever heard about my father in World War II. Um, and that prompted me that evening to search uh, our, our last name and Saipan and up popped this uh, Marine Corps website with an article from a December 1944 issue of Leatherneck Magazine, and it was titled Tavsky's Terrors, Legendary for Exploits on Saipan. And the article was submitted by a fellow named Chris Tipton, who said, this was my father's platoon during World War II, and everything in the story is true, except they were never known as terrors. They were known as the 40 Thieves. And that started my, <laughs> my curiosity even more. And uh, I went into the garage and found my dad's footlocker that uh, had been just sitting there for decades and opened it up, and it was like uh, a treasure trove of uh, history, a time capsule of his... And you were, from, you were not allowed to open it as a kid. Well, it, it never it occurred to me because it was something that he never talked about. And if, if he ever was looking into it, if I entered the room, he'd close it quickly. So it was something that it never piqued my interest to even look inside of it, let alone respect dad's reticence of talking about the war to go in it and start rooting around. I didn't want to open up old wounds for him in that regard. Um, but it, it, like I said, it was a time capsule. And then the time ended in 1945 when he shipped back home. Um, every letter that he had ever sent to my mother was kept uh, by her and then put into this footlocker. So I have all of his letters home from 1941, when they first met at Mike Lyman's and in Los Angeles, to when he returned home uh, in September of 1945. Um, racetrack forms from Agua Caliente in Tijuana, where they went on dates, and, and his platoon rosters for Guadalcanal, Tarawa, and this scout sniper platoon. I found out that's what they were. Um, and uh, his handwritten notes on it of who was wounded, who was killed, who was sick. Um, and one of the names on the roster stood out because it was, the uh, last name was Knuppel. And there was this fellow, Bill Knuppel, that we would visit all the time in Arizona. And uh, all I ever knew is that they were Marine buddies and were stationed together on Iceland. But Bill Knuppel happened to be my dad's platoon sergeant on, you know, for this platoon. And unlike my dad, who never spoke of the war, Bill was uh, a walking encyclopedia of, of everything Marine Corps uh, from their time on Iceland through the Battle of Tinian. And um, it's funny now in, in retrospect, how if my if Bill ever wanted to talk to dad about Saipan or Tinian or anything like that, Dad would always say, Bill, those days are over, and Bill would tacitly comply. And now I understand that even at the age of 80, they still had this relationship of sergeant to lieutenant, which I thought was kind of charming. And then you began to also research 
no, I read your book, and one thing that stood out to me that clearly you are also now very knowledgeable about the overall context of the events. You've clearly educated yourself in great detail about uh, about the Pacific theater in general. So you've really done really historians work here I, it was a, a, a lot of research besides locating the initially i just located the men that were still alive besides bill knuppel and found three more of them who were alive and just started driving around the countryside and from to, you know from uh wisconsin to georgia or to west virginia or to montana or to arizona over and over again, maybe three times a year, I'd be making these treks because every time I'd talk to a man and uh, get their version of the story, I'd share what I'd learn with the other fellows. And that kind of piqued more memories. And after doing this for about four years, I had assembled this huge jigsaw puzzle of, of, of stories that some were complete in and of themselves, like Knuppel's story about being on leave with Don Evans in Kona, um, or some stories, one man provided the beginning, another the middle, and the other the end. And it all kind of made sense. So it, it was, then I got interested in putting it all together. And to help me do that, um, there's a website called Hyperwar, uh, which is a Marine Corps site that deals with every battle in very detailed uh, uh, in very great detail. I also went to the National Archives in Maryland and found Colonel Risley's journal. And Colonel Risley commanded the 6th Marine Regiment. And his scout sniper platoon were his brute squad, basically. They, they guarded the 6th Marine Regiment command post and went out on these covert missions. Um, another bit of uh, information I found was from um, Peter Senich wrote a book called uh, Scout Snipers of World War II in Korea. And he had photos in the book of fellows from Dad's platoon, but he doesn't know their names. I know their names. And he interviewed one of the fellows from the platoon, Otto Hebel. And it turns out that there were only two platoons like this that were deployed in the Pacific during World War II. So they were a very unique group. Uh, the first uh, scout snipers uh, famously secured the pier on Tarawa. And this uh, scout sniper group, uh, since uh, there were no enemy lines to work behind on Tarawa, it was just a 72-hour bloodbath, uh, Saipan was going to be a, a, a month-long grind of a battle almost. And they were specifically trained to live and work behind enemy lines for days and weeks at a time and uh, draw maps and make maps from memory and scout locations to better guide naval and uh, uh, Marine Corps artillery onto targets and wreak havoc where, wherever they could. So they were very unique. In fact, Bill Knuppel once said that uh, Working behind enemy lines, uh, firing a weapon would be your last option. So they were taught how to kill silently in, in ways that you can't even imagine. And uh, 
Bob Smots, another fellow from the platoon who lives in Georgia, mentioned that they learned the Biddle method of bayonet fighting and carried an array of knives with them that each had a singular purpose. So, as I've said, I've, I've recently, you know, finished my own uh, dissertation, and I'm, because I know how difficult it is to actually do research, I'm really fascinated with the work you've done. And I always ask this question, uh, because I think it's an important question for, uh, for readers. Can you tell us what was the biggest obstacle you encountered when you were working on your book, and how you, of course, you, you eventually overcame it? We now have a book, so can you tell us how you did that? Well, time and, and distance. I have uh, already intimated about traveling to see the men um, because technology of the day would be alien to them. And I think they're going to be less uh, willing to open up to a voice or an image on a screen as opposed to sitting with them in person and making it a very personal interaction with them. I grew to know these men like they were my second fathers. And... Um, so distance was difficult in that I would have to, you know, do all of this travel across country and flying to Dahlonega, Georgia isn't an option, to Culloden, West Virginia isn't an option. Um, so it was always a road trip. Uh, and time uh, was also not on my side because I wanted so much for these men who opened their wounds and shared their stories of sacrifice with me, I wanted them to share in, in its you know, release when it came to fruition. So time of, of trying to make it into a, a saleable product for, for them. Um, unfortunately, Bill Knuppel passed away in 2014, um, but Bob Smots uh, was the next to go, but he at least knew that uh, we had signed with a publisher so he knew when he passed away. Uh, and then Roscoe Mullins and in uh, Montana, uh, pardon me, Roscoe Mullins in West Virginia and Marvin Strombo in Montana uh, were alive to, you know, hold the book in their hands and read it. And uh, turns out that Marvin Strombo and Roscoe Mullins, the last two surviving members of the platoon, were best buddies from boot camp through, through Tinian. And even on to when after the war, they were a uh, police force on uh, in, in Japan for uh, a few months. And uh, Roscoe sent uh, an autographed copy to, uh, to uh, pardon me, Marvin sent an autographed copy to, to Roscoe saying, to my fellow thief, you know, Roscoe, you know, love Marvin, which I thought was pretty, pretty touching for these old guys to be able to reunite after not seeing each other for decades. Which brings me to one of the, uh, I think, things which make your book so easy to connect with, that although there is a lot of research in it and there's a lot of facts, there's a lot of knowledge, which, for example, I did not know many of the things about the Pacific Theater, which I've learned from this book, but there's also a lot of detail about the conversations which people had, sometimes even the emotions which they felt. So it's it's almost like a novel. But, and I understand that a lot of this is from people's actual memories and what they've written down and or what they have told you. But 
are there any points where you would have had to fill the gaps? You know, some historical books do this, even some non-fiction books do this. I'm not, I'm not uh, saying that it, that it is in some way fake. I'm not, I'm explicitly not saying that. But are there any points where you had to fill the gaps, so to speak, with your imagination, with your um, instinct of what may have been said or what a person may have felt. Right. One of the first uh, pieces of advice I got when I submitted the first oral history version in 2015 um, was to write it as a narrative, that uh, oral histories don't sell, write it as a narrative. And I found that very hard to, to do because I was so uh, wrapped with the words of the men and the, how they described their feelings and what went on and their relationships with their comrades and those who were killed. Um, and it was very hard for me to, to wrap myself around how to do that. Um, but then finally, I, I, I came to understand that I could convert their words into um, narrative and use you know phrases that they might write home in their letter or phrases out of diaries and how that would become dialogue uh, but a lot of these guys remembered stories in dialogue specifically Knuppel when they uh, encouraged uh, uh, one of the fellows uh, Don Evans was a corporal in the platoon and he was from Kansas City uh, and he had two friends in the army who were stationed at Schofield Barracks. And the 40 Thieves made port in Honolulu, uh, where Schofield Barracks is uh, located. And uh, while they had a little leave there, they went to visit these two army buddies, and they end up getting drunk and convinced the two army buddies to go AWOL uh, with them and join the Marines for the invasion of Saipan. So the whole scene in the bar of encouraging them back and forth, that's all Knuppel. Don said, then Arello said, then Dooley said, and I said. Um, but other, other situations, we had to um, you know, put flesh on the bones of their story. So there were some times that we had to you know, create, um, create a storyline to help it flow from you know, beginning to end. There are different sorts of readers in which we which this show is for, and a lot of them are military historians or people who read military history as history. But we also have some military theory people who always who try and study history as what they can apply for their service today or what can be applied. Reading your book, it's clear that. Uh, your father, Frank Tarkovsky, he had a, an instinctual leadership quality to him. He was, uh, you know, sometimes people say, a leader of men. Yes. He was re respected by his men in an instinctual manner, which was not rank alone. I've served in the armed forces myself. I know that sometimes people have a rank and are not respected. And some people are very deeply respected, like clearly your father was. So do you think that there are lessons which we can draw from his leadership, lessons which um, a modern uh, reader could, uh, 
could apply maybe in their military service, maybe even in the management. There are many people who are trying to apply military leadership lessons to civilian life. Do you think there are lessons from your father's record which we could learn from? Oh, sure. The, uh, the thing that the men said most and what was most respected about my dad um, was Bill Knuppel that he said he had command presence. You just knew you damn well better obey him because that's how he carried himself. And uh, other men appreciated that the fact that dad was a, a Mustang and that's, uh, that's, you know, rising up from a buck private into being a, an officer. And that's, uh, it's not rare, but it, it's not, hap- doesn't happen all the time that you, uh, you know, rise up through the ranks like that. And the men appreciated it because they, he knew what it was like to be a private as opposed to, uh, as Roscoe Mullins said, some fresh silver spoon fed dandy (laughs) lieutenant (laughs) that that didn't know, you know, didn't know anything. Um, so the guys really liked, liked that a lot. Um, and also it was, uh, and, And so my dad was never ask anyone to do anything that you wouldn't do yourself. So his men appreciated that too. And it turned out that, you know, dad became mayor of our city in Sturgeon Bay and then had some unsuccessful runs for state office. Um, But, uh, you know, he was, he was a, a very good leader, progressive in our city. He invested in education. He got a new school built, some started waterfront development, uh, was part of, uh, a new hospital being built in our city. So he did, he did quite a, quite a bit and uh, led quite effectively and knew how to get along with, I think that that's the thing in the military that uh, everyone can learn from is how to get along with people that have different viewpoints than you have and how to get things done. It would, certainly would like to see a little bit more of that today. Um, and the, oh, I forget, I was interviewed by someone in, in DC who said you could, you know, the, uh, leaders, uh, political leaders could learn a lot from the military as far as I- integration and, and, uh, and how to work together to achieve a common goal. Which is also interesting that clearly your father had, you know, he had a, a clearly a, a civic spirit in him. He continued giving back to the community long after his military service had ended. Correct. Yeah, he was, uh, after he was a uh, mayor, he was also postmaster. And then when he would retired, he was still active in, in the community quite a bit. And one thing which fascinated me from my perspective as a historian, and it comes up a lot in your book, when we talk about the, uh, of course, the 40 thieves, it, it's in the name, there were people with uh, a degree of uh, discipline problems. <laughs> to, to, to say the least. The actual, um, the actual, the actual thievery is not, not, not the most unusual. It goes on even today. I've seen people do things in my own service, which were um, somewhere between criminal drama and comedy. But the thing which fascinates me is that Clearly, when uh, even starting with Sir Frank Tikovsky selecting the men, when he says, mm, 
when two people fight and one of them ends up in the infirmary and one of them ends up in the brig, I want the man who wants the brig. Clearly, he's not very concerned with the formal, uh, the formal legal side of um, military selection, where today military forces have a great emphasis on formalities and on, uh, if there is this black mark on your record, then we cannot take you into the special unit to this particular service and clearly clearly um, Frank Tchaikovsky bypassed that very effectively to great success and do, do you say do you think that this is just because it was a different time or is this a kind of lesson which we can or should learn from well, there, there's a, a lot of different facets to this one was all of these guys grew up during the Great Depression where uh, they had to learn to do without, and they had to probably steal to feed families or, or to, you know, repair machinery, or they had skills, uh, in, you know, that they learned growing up as children on how to survive in, in, in during the great depression. So that made them a little bit more resourceful than, than other generations, uh, the other thing was that in the Marine Corps and, and during World War II, it was generally a, a phrase that you weren't considered a good Marine until you've been in the brig, you know, once or twice. So it wasn't uh, necessarily a black mark uh, at that time to have been thrown in the brig. Um, and uh, the Marines of World War II in general were notorious thieves because they were the poorest equipped branch of service and had to do all of the heavy lifting on Guadalcanal and Tarawa and Saipan and Tinian and, and all of those uh, islands in the Pacific. In fact, when they first went into Guadalcanal, they were issued weapons, rations, and uniforms that were left over from World War I. And that's what they had to take on the seasoned imperial army that had been fighting for almost a decade in the Pacific, um, remnants of World War. When it wasn't until Tarawa, then they started to get uh, an M1 to replace their single-shot 1918 Springfield rifles that only had a, um, a six-cartridge magazine in it. So the Japanese would be counting off, you know, one, two, three, four, five, six, knew you'd have to reload, and then they'd, they'd charge. Um, so they, 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 it was necessary for them to, to steal from the army or the navy who were better equipped just to increase their odds of victory against the Japanese because they were a very cunning and uh, um, uh, a cunning enemy who would not quit. They would not surrender. So it made the war in the Pacific, a much more cruel, uh, brutal, and personal war for these guys, uh, which is you know, why when I began talking to Knuppel and Smots and Strombo and Mullins and got to know them so much and how much they cared about all of these men who were in this 40-man unit, they didn't remember any, anybody from their platoons on Tarawa or Guadalcanal, but they remembered everyone from this unit. And Knuppel would say how he always remembers his, you know, buddies because who died because they never had a chance at life and all of the Japanese boys that were just like them. And one of the things that I wanted to do with uh, the book was to 
make sure that I bring brought back these fellows to life. And and it's not just a, a, a book about war. It's a book about these these 18, 19 year old boys who went to war and, you know, wanting the readers to fall in love with them as their brother or son or or husband or, you know, boyfriend or what have you. Um, and many of uh, the readers who adore the book happen to be women, which I don't necessarily find unusual, but they say it, it, it the battle scenes of it become so uh, intense that they have to put it down, but then they have to pick it up and, and keep reading to find out what happens to all of these guys. So um, I'm uh, very thankful that my co-author Cynthia and I were able, Cynthia Crock and I were able to, you know, craft the book to, to succeed in, in that. Um, and one of the things that my dad always said was the, was a mantra of his that we don't do enough for veterans. And uh, uh, just to honor that sentiment, uh, half the royalties we get from the book, I donate to organizations that, that do help our veterans, because I think it'd be a sad su- excuse of a son if I, if I didn't honor his, his memory. I'd like to come back to something you've mentioned just now, because it's interesting to me. Um, you said that um, perhaps unusual for a book with, this, with such a subject, you said you have a, a substantial number of women readers. Do you think that the fact that you've written a lot, you've integrated into the book the relationships of some of these men with women back home, do you think that this fact helps this book be more accessible, more... I don't like the phrase accessible here, but... Do you think it makes this book easier for women readers to to, to sort of empathize with? Well, there was a, a, a woman in Montana who, who bought the book mainly because of, of Marvin uh, being uh, from Montana. She found that interesting. And the, it was a, a nice comment that she said that uh, I think it's a rare depiction of war that neither sugarcoats nor glorifies. And, uh, and that's kind of it. You know, we're not uh, some shoot 'em up rah-rah um, Hollywood version. It's, it's pretty, some people did, took exception to, uh, thought it a vulgar book because these 18, 19-year-old boys, you know, were going to, you know, a place of prostitution on, on Hawaii. Um, that was a Roscoe Mullins story. And some people took exception to that. It's, you know, these kids aren't choir boys. You don't get choir boys to go off to win a war. They're a bunch of rough and tumble kids that, you know, have been taken away from their homes. And um, I was just telling their story. And um, so, it, so, so let's, let's, let's go back to this because I find it kind of funny. It's because this is a book where people go to a foreign land and, you know, they, they kill people with bayonets. And they, uh, they, there's a, there's a scene, uh, there is a moment where um, uh, prisoners of war are uh, are are killed, yes. And uh, but, but it it offends readers that these same young men will uh, go and they will go to a uh, to a brothel uh, in this kind of book. 
Yeah, um, I'm, I'm like I said, I'm just telling their story. This is these are things that they did. Um, you know, they they were just kids. I think uh, Bob Smots in Georgia said the Marine Corps wanted 18 year old boys because they just didn't have any sense. They'd go anywhere they were told. They would do anything they were told, and they just thought they were invincible. Um, and these guys, you know, proved proved the point. Except they learned that some of them weren't invisible. They all had friends in the platoon that that died um, on Saipan, and um, and you know, nothing was more impactful for me than l- listening to Roscoe Mullins talk about Martin Dyer when when you know he was walked into an ambush and got killed on Saipan about how how quiet the night was and how still the evening that you could hear the sound of Tipton tearing the sulfa packets and you could hear the sound of the powder hitting the wounds and the gurgling and the bubbling of the blood and the only other thing you could hear that night was Martin Dyer calling out for his mother until you couldn't hear that anymore. It's like, who can write that? These, these fellows lived that. And, um, and it just, uh, you know, it makes, makes me very happy that uh, people are enjoying the book. And it, it can be a, a living legacy for not only the four fellows who contributed with the their remembrances of sacrifice, but also for the, you know, to let the fellows who, who died on Saipan get a, get a second shot at, at, at life for, you know, a brief few pages of book. Now, I, I really think that this is a wonderful answer and I'd like to thank you for, for this answer. And um, you know, as we wrap up our our show, there's always a question which we which we ask. It's it's not contractually required, but it's a question we always ask. You know, this is a show about books, and it's a show for readers. We've we were both writers and readers, and I'd like you to tell me what are the books which you are reading right now, or perhaps there are some books which you would like to suggest to our audience. Where are you now in your book journey, if you will? Sure. One thing that I've just reread uh, is uh, Minnesota, 1918, and it's very relevant to today because it was also a time of you know, a, a worldwide plague, the Spanish flu. Um, the world was at war, um, or and and political strife was going on all in the state of Minnesota, and you know great fires swept across the state as well. So I, I, that's by Kurt Brown. I uh, just finished rereading that. I've just started the Splendid in the Vile by Eric Larson, and um, and if people want to, you know, get a little bit better picture of of you know the background for. Um, the Forty Thieves. One one book that I used almost as a Bible was Leon Uris's Battle Cry. Knuppel once said he, the guy in his uh, Tarawa outfit, wrote a book. <laughs> I thought, oh, you know, he wrote a book, so what? No, but it was Leon Uris. Leon Uris and Knuppel were buddies, um, and uh, and Battle Cry is a fictional account of of 
uh, of the war in the Pacific of the 6th Marine Regiment. And so everyone's name has changed. So Colonel Murray becomes High Pockets and Holland Mad Smith has a different name. But in the book, he writes of this notorious band of thieves in the 6th Marine Regiment. Um, and one of the, their escapades was a stolen army colonel's jeep. So at first I'm reading it thinking it's all, you know, made up stuff. No, just, you know, but, but then I started to think, well, I should ask these guys, did you ever steal a Jeep? And I asked Marvin Strombo and he looked at me kind of strange and said, no. And Roscoe Mullins just laughed and hung his head. And I went to Bob Smots and I said, Bob, did, did you guys ever steal an army colonel's Jeep? And he said, no. And at that point I was deflated thinking that it was just all fiction. He said, it was an army captain's Jeep and we beat the hell out of that thing. Truth in television. <laughs> so, so that was fun. So I, you know, uh, I like reading Leon Uris's Battle Cry. I use that almost as as a, as a Bible. That was another asset, um, as well as you know Colonel Risley's Daily Journal, um, and just to get a different uh, flavor for you know war uh, for whom the bell tolls. I I, I read that. Um, during research, as well as Gone with the Wind. Uh, and uh, that, that uh, there's a scene in it um, where, oh, God, who told me this? Maybe it was Ms. Roscoe Mullen said that, you know, nurses, you know, were, um, well, anyhow, I, I, there, there, there are some scenes where Scarlett O'Hara is a nurse to, to um, wounded soldiers. And there was a little bit in the book where I, that, that was very helpful in in fleshing out a story that uh, that um, that was told to me by Bob Smots about about nurses and on Saipan on Hawaii, so that's about it for my uh, for my, for my current reading and what was helpful in in researching the book. I'd like to thank you for having been uh, with us today. Well, thank you, Boris. It's been a pleasure. This have been the New Books Network. We thank you for listening to us.